Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. for the phone or I don't know so we'll just keep trying and see if he's available meanwhile um, <clears throat> I know I've done this before a few times uh, maybe once every few months I'll do this but I need to know who's listening there are particular reasons why now maybe more than any other time I need to know who's listening and how many people are listening now I think <clears throat> I'm pretty sure there's a way to measure downloads. I mean, you can always tell on um, 
on podcasts and internet radio, how many people have downloaded the show. I guess you can also tell who is listening to it while it's being broadcast, how many, uh, how many streams is it? I'm not sure. But so we have a number of people that we can tabulate who are listening when it's being broadcast. And then uh, we have a number of people who download it. Uh, and we can see that number. I think you can see it too when you uh, when you go to download it, or it shows the number of downloads. Um, <clears throat> but I am now. It was my birthday the other day, June sixteenth. I was seventy one uh, years old. So this is my. I'm not very good at this. I never was. So I'm entering my. So I'm in my seventy second year. Is that how it is? Which is easily twice as long as I ever expected to live. And considering the life I've had, now I, I qualify this by uh, reminding everybody that this is the Progressive Radio Network, and uh, 99% of the 99.9% of the programs on the Progressive Media Radio Network are intended to be progressive. That is to say, forward-looking, positive. Um, I am the one fly in the ointment. I am the one, you know, sort of uh, speck in the soup. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good at those. Are these called metaphors? I'm not good at these. But um, uh, I'm, as Gary pointed out to me, Gary Null, who, um, whose station this is, and it's your station, my station, but it's his station too, and um, he's the one who maintains it and runs it and provides all the... Uh, the funds and the equipment and everything else for it. Uh, Gary is, um, you know, the most positive person that I've ever met. Certainly the most positive person perhaps that anybody's ever met. Uh, but as he pointed out to me one day when I was complaining about something here, which is what I do frequently, complain about things, although I haven't done it for a while. I've been good. I haven't gotten any recognition from anybody that I haven't complained, but that's okay. Am I complaining? No. But uh, he sa I said, well, I don't want to complain. He says, yes, you do. That's what you do, Mike. You complain. Well, maybe there's a different word for it these days. Maybe it's just uh, a kind of out loud reassessment or assessment of my life. This happens sometimes we are waiting for our guests. I don't even know if he'll, uh, if he'll be there, but I hope he is because it's an interesting uh, subject that I want to talk about. Um, there are various reasons why I'm reassessing my life right now. It's something that uh, I notice a lot of people who write to me, write me emails or people who do listen to this show. And once again, I would like to know from everybody who downloads this show, uh, you send me an email. And the way to do that, or anybody who listens to this show when it's broadcast, at the actual time of broadcast, or when, it's down, or when you download it, I would like to hear from you just telling me. You don't have to comment on the show. You can if you want. That's fine with me. Um, but I would like to hear that you actually did download it and that you are listening or that you listen on a regular or irregular basis, whatever it is. And the way to do that is to go to my website. Um, the website is faderfiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. And uh, when you go there, uh, there are various things. You can, I have a blog there, and every week or a couple of weeks, I will post something on this blog. 
and uh, it's funny or it's serious, it's about politics, it's a personal thing, whatever it is, and feel free to comment on it. But when you go to the blog, when you go to faderfiles.com, there is a way to, there's a way to contact me, and uh, please do. Uh, you can join my mailing list, and you can contact me, either or, um, either one or both. So, <clears throat> sorry about that. <clears throat> it was my birthday uh, on Wednesday, and I was 71 years old, and as I say, way older than I ever imagined. And this isn't just because I'm a member of the 60s generation, you know, where there was this particular thing, a lot of people in the 60s, you may remember this if you're an old folk like I am. Uh, you may remember the slogan of the uh, 60s. It wasn't the slogan of everybody in the 60s, because in some ways it was an absurd, reactionary, childish slogan. And in some other ways, it had a lot of truth to it. It was one of those generational wars that was going on that occasionally happens in American history, or maybe in the history of other countries, too. Cultural, generational, political wars. And the saying was in those days, and you may remember this, don't trust anybody over 30. <laughs> Can you imagine? Don't trust anybody over 30, because this was this uh, 60s revolution, and in many ways it was a cultural and political revolution. Um, Bernie Sanders is often talking about a political revolution, and we all know what he means when he says that. Well, it was the same kind of thing, only with a lot of st extra stuff added to it. A revolution in the way people thought about their lives, what they would do with their lives, what their lives meant as Americans, as human beings. Would we all just go get a job like our parents did? And, um, you know, there, there's the, always there's the generational, uh, re there's always the rebellion, right? The inevitable rebellion. This is de developmental. There are rebellions when kids are two years old, and that's universal, right? <coughs> there are, uh, there's another uh, rebellion when kids get to be teenagers, and later on, and later on, and later on. Um, but this rebellion was a, uh, a generational rebellion against a very stodgy, to put it mildly, predictable 50s way of living. People uh, who are our parents, most of whom uh, are long gone or recently gone. Uh, I notice uh, when sometimes I check in on Facebook that a lot of people, and when I speak to other people I know, and there are people who are I'm related to, who um, talk about their uh, recently in the last few years, and even you know yesterday I noticed somebody talk about their um, parents who celebrated their 99th birthday or their 96th birthday or they um, died a year ago or they're dying now. So a lot of our parents' generation still alive, but not that many. I shouldn't say a lot. Not that many still alive and struggling, of course, at that age. Uh, I think probably the average person who um, who was a 50s parent when we were kids in the 40s or 50s, uh, those of us who were, um, or even in the 60s, um, have parents who are way into their 80s and some even older than that. So this is the way it developed for them. They lived through, they survived the Depression, which was worse than anything that we've experienced since then in terms of poverty, lack of jobs, lack of purpose, um, possibility of actual revolutions in the street. Um, 
and they survived that only uh, then to wind up smack in the middle of World War II, and a lot of the men went off to uh, into the service. Uh, several million men, I think it was, who knows, when you add it all up, from 1941 to 1945, it would be 10 million, 15 million. Several million men were in combat, uh, however briefly or for long periods of time. <clears throat> Especially the the people in the um, in the um, in the in the Pacific, a lot of the Marines and the uh, Army people in the Pacific were in combat, straight, violent, brutal combat, just like it was in Europe. But this in the in the Marines and the Army in the Pacific, it was extraordinary and relentless. Um, so they survived the Depression and this terrible poverty. And this, of course, shaped people. I mean, uh, you know, was there enough food to eat from day to day, from week to week? Were there any jobs to be had? Would there ever, ever be a job to be had, no matter who, what you did, whether you were a college graduate? There are some hints of that now. I mean, what jobs are available for anybody out there? What jobs are available? And what kind of generational conflict is there going on right now? I don't know. But uh, so they survived uh, the Depression, those that did. They survived World War II, those that did. And when they, when, when it got to be the late 40s and the early 50s and the economy started picking up and there were jobs for everybody and people were building houses all over the place and more and more babies were being born, families being created, what most of that generation, 95, 99% of that generation, what they really wanted was just peace and quiet and predictability. For a long time, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know if they would ever have a job. They didn't know if they'd be able to keep their job. They didn't know if there would be medicine or a hospital for them to go to to survive whatever common illness they had. Then they're in combat. They don't know if a bullet has got their name on it. They don't know if artillery or mortar shells are going to land in the foxhole next to them or right in theirs. They don't know if they're going to live or die from one hour, from one day to the next. They don't know. So the last thing they wanted when they got home was a predict... The last thing they wanted was unpredictability of any kind. Of any kind. They wanted everything to look the same, to be the same. They expected everything the same way to be the same, uh, you know, the same... Uh, when they get up in the morning, to have the same cereal, to have the same... Uh, the same wallpaper, <laughs> the same car to start up, or the same subway train to run on time, and the same job to go to, and the same stuff to do. And they expected their kids to behave in a predictable way. They made sure that, you know, uh, most of that generation, my parents' generation, wanted to be wanted to have children who, um, who did not give them a lot of trouble. They had trouble enough for 10 lifetimes, this generation. And, of course, kids um, are the essence of unpredictability. Youth, childhood, babyhood, whatever, you know, uh, a kid will impulsively do anything almost any time. And, of course, you have, to, you have to keep kids from, you know, impulsively, you know, putting their hands, sticking their fingers in, um, in uh, outlets, you know, wall sockets. You have to protect a kid all the time because kids are completely impulsive. 
They're completely primitive. They're impulsive. They don't plan ahead. They don't need to plan ahead if they've got um, if they've got um, some parental guidance. One, two parents, anybody, something, somewhere, right? So, um, but these people who came back from these uh, from these situations where bombs are going off and bullets are smacking into people next to them, or maybe into the part of their body, or who would survive. So we went from like 1929, 1930, 1931 uh, for the next 13, 14, 15 years. And this is mostly uh, people who were uh, coming of age, people in their teens, uh, people 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 25 years old, going through this stretch of time. And they learned, what they learned from that was no more surprises, no more surprises, because something that's surprising or unpredictable or sudden um, could remind them of, of the pit of poverty they lived in and despair. It could remind them of the instant death that they would have to survive and that other people didn't survive. So a lot of these guys came back from the war, and the women who stayed home during the war and kept the home fires burning uh, also never knew when they were going to get a telegram from the War Department not called the Defense Department in those days. Uh, they were more prone to be telling people uh, the truth about what was really going on. I mean, they should call it the War Department. Why not? It is the War Department. Um, the Defense Department? Yeah, a Defense Department, if all you do is you have a border and you have um, an armed forces that protects your border, it defends against any attack from the outside. Is that what the United States of America does? No, I don't think so. It's the War Department. I say, you know, there are petitions. Anybody can start a petition on um, online, right? When you go to petitions.com, <laughs> I don't know, there's some place where you can start a petition. Anybody can start a petition. Uh, I suggest a petition to, uh, to rename the, um, the uh, Defense Department, the War Department. Wouldn't it be a breath of fresh air to have anybody in the government or any government bureaucracy actually tell the truth about who they are and what they're doing, wouldn't that be something? That would be like letting in the window, uh, opening the window and letting in fresh air for a change. Step in the right direction. The War Department, the invasion subdivision of the War Department, uh, the assistant secretary for uh, drone bombings, call it what it is for Christ's sake. And I'll stop pretending, stop being hypocritical. So meanwhile, these people, what they wanted was sameness and predictability. So they built millions of houses that looked very much like all the other millions of houses. Um, they bought cars that were very much like every other car. There wasn't a million, there was two kinds of sneakers. Every, every kid, every boy my age had a crew cut. Every girl had um, nice long hair. Whether or not it was natural for her, she had nice long hair. And girls wore dresses um, in school. Um, and they had, and everybody had to keep their hands folded on the desk. And uh, I'm not talking about you know, Catholic school now. I'm talking about public school. Everybody had to shut up. You didn't talk during class. Uh, certainly there was no cell phones. People didn't have, they weren't staring at their cell phones or talking to their cell phones or whatever else that people do every minute now every day in, in school, right? Um, so everybody was very well behaved. Everybody was expected to be well behaved. We had uh, one enemy, 
We had uh, all our enemies were uh, gathered into one evil empire, and that was the Russians, the Soviet Union, and they were our uh, they were our antagonist. But of course, we didn't see beneath the surface, and we didn't see that uh, the State Department and the War Department and uh, every other department in the CIA was attempting to subvert every democracy in the world. We didn't know about this. They're not going to teach it to us in school. All we saw was the flag, George Washington and the cherry tree. That's all we heard about. I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> they used to teach us true in school. Do you remember this? Are you old enough to remember this? I, I admit now that, that my show is probably broadcast or listened to, I should say, by and that the average age of the person, the, the listener to this show is, is this you? Is probably 64 years old or 69 years old. I really don't know. Somewhere within 10 years of my age, although I know because I hear from people who are younger, I hear from people who are in their 40s and 50s, and a couple of people here and there from people who are in their 30s, that they listen to the show too. After all, political issues are political issues, and that seems, and I do a lot of political interviews. I do a lot. Today I was going to interview somebody about a cultural subject, actually, is somebody from the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Isn't that great? Not freedom of religion, but freedom from religion foundation. <laughs> However, this man has not yet appeared, and um, if he does, then we will uh, we will do the interview. Um, maybe, maybe if I'm in the mood to do it. I don't know if I'm in the mood to do it anymore. But um, just since he's my guest, and he, if he shows up, we'll do it. So meanwhile, everybody wanted predictability, and. Everybody uh, looked forward, and I was part of this too. You know, you graduate from college. I graduated from college in 1966. What is all this um, remembrance about? What is all this? Um, is it not nostalgia? I can't call it that yet. But I might get to that point where I'll, I'll call it nostalgia, or I'll be nostalgic. I don't mind being nostalgic. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. The words sentimental and nostalgic I have heard by a lot of people described uh, as yucky. And <clears throat> to and and saccharine and um, full of uh, delusion and illusions. Not to me. I love nostalgia. <laughs> I I love that kind of stuff. It's okay with me. Pathos, melodrama, sentiment. Uh, it's fine with me. I like uh, I like Puccini operas. I like guys standing up there and women standing up there, bawling their eyes out and singing at the same time. The more tomato sauce, the better in my operas, right? It's okay with me. I don't need subtlety. I don't like subtlety. My mind has been and still occasionally uh, will be, even despite all the, um, the, the brain cells that have died for various reasons uh, over the last couple of decades. And my mind sort of tends to... Um, uh, extremes. One hand, it will be it will be extraordinarily subtle sometimes, depending on what mood I'm in, or what pill I took, <laughs> or what situation I'm in, or how awake I am. And sometimes it'll flip right over to the completely extreme, vulgar, black and white side. So, um, do I contradict myself? Uh, as Mr. Whitman said, I often do. I contain multitudes, which is not such a pleasant thing. Let me tell you. So um, while I have a drink of water, uh, you can say to yourself, where is this guy going? Is there any point to this? Well, I can tell you right now there isn't. So you don't have to worry about that. Give me a second for some water. Ah. 
drinking, to be environmentally conscious out of something called Clean Canteen. This is not a commercial. I wish I was. I wish I was getting paid $500,000 a year by Clean Canteen. K, clean, just substitute the, um, the uh, C with a K. Um, clean Canteen, which is um, instead of carrying plastic around all the time, I put filtered water in this um, su- uh, supposedly uh, clean metal container. Where was I? So they wanted us all to be predictable. And what did we grow up with? We grew up with uh, a world in which um, everybody, every woman was supposed to get um, you know, a high school degree, learn how to be a typist or a nurse, um, and eventually get married and have kids. That's what, the, that's what the job of women was supposed to be. And that's left over from you know, many, many generations, hundreds of years of, of, uh, of cultural and um, political and gender behavior. That's how it was supposed to be. We're not looking for professionals, not looking for uh, you know, women to express themselves. That wasn't the time for that. That's what, that's what women did in those days. When the men came home from the war, whatever, if women were working in factories and liking their jobs or loving their jobs and feeling uh, or working in offices doing jobs that men used to do in government service or in business, bang, as soon as the men came back, the women were kicked out of those jobs and, um, and sent back to keep the house clean, to cook, to buy the groceries, and to bring the kids up. And that was that, right? So... When I was growing up in the 50s and uh, in the early 60s, the 60s started when Kennedy got shot. In case you were wondering, uh, you don't have to look it up on Wikipedia. You don't have to look up the 60s. I'll tell you, the 60s started when John Kennedy got assassinated. Um, There's a lot more to that, but that's when it started. And the 60s ended... Somewhere, it sort of ended with a whimper, not a bang. The 60s ended somewhere in around 1973 or 74 after Vietnam finally was completely taken over um, by Ho Chi Minh's forces, um, by the forces of the North. And um, then uh, Nixon resigned, and um, what's his name? can't even remember his name now. He was so forgettable. Ford became the vice president, immediately pardoned Nixon, and America went into sort of a, a cultural, um, political, and economic pit of despair, as well it should have, karmically speaking, after what happened in Vietnam. We went way too far, spent too much money, were far too murderous, went way overboard, and didn't pay any attention to what was going on at home. And after we lost that war, after we got our asses kicked by little guys running around half our size wearing black pajamas, uh, it was depressing for the entire country. And then there was the Arab oil um, embargo. And um, then uh, one thing after another, and Carter came in. The 60s started when John Kennedy got shot, right around the same time, for various reasons. There was like a match that set off a keg of dynamite. And then um, ended in the um, in the early to mid seventies, and everybody who had been uh, rebellious and part of a cultural, political, or sexual, or um, <clears throat> or drug or musical revolution, they didn't disappear. And new things were happening. Things were starting to change, but they receded. So the rebellion came from people of my generation who were in their 20s, mostly in their late teens um, and in their 20s. 
They did not want to go automatically into an office to become an insurance men. Didn't want to become an insurance agent or automatically become a lawyer or a doctor or go into business or get a job. And the whole idea was to get a job that would last forever and you would get promoted on a regular basis. And there were many jobs. Uh, if you were blue collar, uh, the idea was that you would uh, get a job at the local Ford or General Motors factory or whatever other manufacturing plant there was available. And there was a tremendous surge in economic activity in the 50s, after World War II in the late 40s and the 50s. <coughs> and this lasted straight through, I think, uh, to the 70s when there was some, probably some dip, some depression. So there were jobs there, but people did not want, and this is typical of teenagers and people in their um, 20s sometimes, they don't want to be their parents. They don't want to be their parents. You know that ad? Remember that ad that they had on? I don't even remember what it was. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the uh, Oldsmobile. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. Right. We don't, you know, and it's so typical of any, um, of any generation that they don't want to be, that they rebel against their parents. That um, they didn't want to, like, you know, everybody didn't want to be the same as their parents. But this was, this had the added, uh, the added uh, um, impetus and the added passion and rage of stored up decades and, you know, in some cases, uh, centuries of rage and anger and disgust over racism, sexism, uh, the Stonewall uh, riot, which started off the, uh, the uh, gay rights revolution, was in 1968. A lot of this stuff was in the 1960s. <coughs> And uh, one reason my voice gets like this, I've got people who write to me and say, why does your voice get hoarse? Because um, about two and a half years ago when I had my um, emergency open heart surgery, when finally my heart did open up, I've been trying very hard to keep it from opening up my entire life because it could be hurt if you open it up, right? Who knows what can get in there? <laughs> and then afterwards, I closed it down too. But for a moment there... Uh, because I was unconscious and because uh, they needed to save my life, they opened up my heart. And uh, when they did eight hours on a heart-lung machine of open-heart surgery, this is two and a half years ago now, they nicked my left vocal cord. And that's why my throat gets sore, and that's why it will always be sore if I talk too much. Uh, it's one reason why I don't have a show on Sirius Satellite Radio anymore, because those shows are all two hours and three hours long. I suppose I could limp through one of those shows, but my voice wouldn't hold up to it. And when I talk these days for more than, for the period that I'm talking now, which is around half an hour, um, you try it anyhow. I mean, it's very strange to talk for half an hour or an hour anyhow. Um, it's not a normal or natural thing for people to do, unless I suppose they're professors or teachers or people who can't shut up. <laughs> But to get on the radio and project and talk like this, which I did for decades uh, on BAI, and sometimes I did that on Sirius Satellite Radio, um, is, uh, is a very unusual thing. You can't, just, you can't just have a conversation like this and just go, see, right? It doesn't project. You have to use the microphone. You have to project. I have to have in my mind, and I do have in my mind, the image of, or even if it's not a conscious graphic image, the feeling of hundreds, if not thousands of people listening to me. This is the way it's always been since I've been on the radio. That's what you get used to. I'm not on a stage. 
which is a different experience. And I have been on stage. And projection and inclusion of the entire audience while you're talking is important. But here, there's uh, technology. There's all kinds of, uh, there's a styrofoam cover to the microphone, there's the microphone, there's cables, there's, uh, there's the internet. It used to be before the internet, there was um, uh, a signal that would go to um, a broadcasting tower and that would send out a larger amplified signal. Um, so it's difficult to do, difficult thing to do. And after they nicked my vocal cord, uh, here's a little tip for you, if you read the Science Times or if you wanted to know, and that's just not something you might want to know, uh, and it's something you don't have to know, unless, of course, you ever have, um, if you choose or if you need to have um, bypass surgery, heart surgery. And uh, this, of course, does not apply generally to anybody been, you know, below the age of 60 or 70. If you have to have that, sometimes people in their 50s, you should know, know now that um, your left vocal cord, for some reason known only to our creator, and that's probably, who's that, Bill Gates? I don't know. To, uh, only known to our creator. Uh, your left vocal cord curl loops and curls down around near your heart. Why, don't ask me, do I look like a biologist to you? No. Do I know what God's works are? I don't know. But somehow during the operation to, um, on the heart-lung machine and to, uh, to sew up the, uh, my aorta, which decided to explode one day, they managed to nick my left vocal cord where it went down around my heart. So my voice has never really been the same again, and it never will be the same again, which is one reason why I often interview people these days and don't talk for as long as I'm talking now. In fact, I think it's probably time to take a little musical break, and then we will come back, and I will tell you more about, um, I will repeat something I said earlier, and tell you more what it feels like to have had recently to have a birthday and some other things, and I'm sort of reviewing my life at this point. Thank you. 
Rebecca Quartet, take five. And uh, that's Paul Desmond with that astounding sound on the, uh, is it the alto sax? I can't tell. I think it's the alto sax. Although it could be a tenor sax. But nobody had a sound like Paul Desmond. Absolutely beautiful. Otherworldly and uh, very human all at the same time. Beautiful sound. Beautiful gem-like flowing sound. Smooth. Smooth as velvet. Paul Desmond, De Brubeck Quartet. So I had wandered off into generational rebellion, and um, that's the 60s. You know, that was the 60s. So um, we had, uh, you know, um, the Stonewall Rebellion. We have women's rights, women, uh, you know, uh, just getting sick and tired, finally, of, uh, you know, just being considered... um, uh, sex objects, or you know, mom, or uh, the or the little woman. No more. No enough. We got to be. We got to break out of that. It's still happening, of course. Plenty to be achieved, and you see what's going on with gay rights all over the place. Um, we'll skip transgender for the moment because I feel very ambivalent about the entire subject. Um, uh, how many transgender people are there in the country? I don't know. Um, and this is part, by the way. This is part of. And then, of course. Uh, the ultimate, the uh, the bottom line, the uh, the great, uh, along with uh, the murder of the American Indians, the great karmic stain on America's soul and heart and guts, uh, racism, slavery and racism, which is still, of course, going on all over the place. Um, and this all just went, you know, Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King, you know, a completely different style, but violence and... Um, and uh, all of these things from the 60s, things that people in some places take for granted now, things that people see clearly as onerous and unacceptable and, uh, and outrageous, uh, they take it for granted, people were uh, finally exploded in the 60s. And these things that are happening now, women who are uh, politicians, women, a woman who is going to run for and possibly become the president of the United States, uh, women in all sorts of jobs, lawyers, doctors, uh, business women. Um, this is where we've come. We've come to the point where women can be, uh, you know, the, uh, the head lawyer for a corporate uh, hedge fund. Now, that's progress. <laughs> but it is. It is progress. Or some gay guy or some gay woman or some black man or some black woman can run an organization or even a corporation that makes weapons. That's the final progress. You know? That's American progress for you, right? It doesn't matter who you are anymore. You can still make a lot of money and wind up killing people. Okay, yes, I know, I understand. But it's a better and freer world. It's a, it is a truly, without the cynicism, braver new world than it was. Um, but this took a lot of people putting it on the line. A lot of people got beaten up. A lot of people got killed. A lot of people's lives were dedicated and even wasted um, in this struggle, uh, which burst forward in the 60s and um, for various complicated reasons. There's a book, I think, which explains a lot of its cultural and political stuff in ways that are probably extremely good that I never read, although I interviewed the author. And I think it's called The 60s by Todd Gitlin, G-I-T-L-I-N. Well, he may actually be still a professor at Columbia. I don't know. Todd Gitlin, and it's called The 60s. 
And uh, you will be very familiar with it if you were a participant in all of this. And if you wanted to find out more about why it happened and who was involved in it and what your parents did, if you're in your 20s or 30s, then, um, then this may be a good book for you to read. So um, my birthday, I'm 71 years old. And um, uh, now I was part of this generation, you know, part of the demonstrations, uh, you know, dealing with the cops, um, voter registration, um, you know, getting involved in uh, men, getting involved in, like, for instance, one of these things that, that changed was used to be, if you watch old 19, 1930s, 40s, 50s um, films, you'll see if somebody's going to have a baby, the man has his hat on, he's got his uh, suit jacket on, or maybe he took it off, you know, in a daring exposure of his white shirt, <laughs> pacing around the waiting room because men had nothing to do. Women were in there, the doctor was in there, the nurse was in there. The nurse would come out and say, congratulations, Mr. Smith, you have a uh, baby boy. Uh, I don't know why they added that very often. I mean, they weren't going to have a five-year-old boy, but you have a baby boy. You have a boy. It's a boy. It's a girl. And uh, they'd say, thank, thank you, nurse. Thank you. Isn't that wonderful? And then they would get to look at the, um, the uh, baby boy or girl uh, through some uh, plexiglass or some glass, you know, lying in um, um, a, little a little crib, a little cradle. Um, <clears throat> but my generation... Uh, because of women's lib, because uh, because of changing gender roles, because equality was the word of the day, because equality was finally demanded by people who had had none, or practically none, uh, for so many decades, for centuries in some cases, you know, for a thousand years. And so my generation was the first one, and believe me, it was... Uh, humbling, and a lot of people fought against it, and there was a lot of trouble. Um, men uh, started going to things like Lamaze classes with women. Uh, when my uh, when my ex-wife was um, pregnant with my two kids, I went to classes and to be to learn how to be with her when she finally gave birth, and I sat there. Uh, while my uh, ex-wife was giving birth to my to my children, uh, who are now 36 years old and 31 years old. <laughs> That's how old I am, right? But, of course, I remember them when the second they were born, which is an extraordinary experience. But men were never permitted into the delivery room before that. It was only in the 60s and especially actually in the 70s. This is what started really in the 70s and went especially into the 80s. In the 60s, still... It had some old-fashioned gender roles. Um, even in the 60s revolutions, there were gender roles where a lot of men were in charge, uh, sometimes white men in charge of, uh, or on the board of directors of black organizations. Or if there was uh, women's liberation, you'd still they'd be part of an organization that men were ultimately in charge of. So a lot of this stuff really began to become more equal in the 70s and then especially the 80s. My daughter was born in 1980, and my son in 1985. And it became fairly common among uh, a lot of uh, couples that the man would sit in the delivery room, as I did, 
and sit there and uh, there was electric, speak of technology, there was a, a graph, there was a machine that showed a graph of when the next contraction would come and that's when you would be pay extra special attention. You'd hold your wife's hand, <clears throat> maybe put up with some cursing and screaming and various fluids were coming out of uh, places. Uh, if this is bothering you, you can tune away and rejoin me in your next incarnation. Um, so, you know, this is the first time that men did this stuff, basically in the 70s and then in the 80s. And you sat there, and you were able to really help. And you were part of, of course, you weren't, you know, feeling the pain, the actual pain, but you were part of the whole experience, part of the whole experience. In fact, in one case, uh, I don't know how often this happened, but when my son was born in 1985, uh, and I'm in the living room, the doctor... Uh, um, gave me uh, these special surgical scissors and asked me if I wanted to cut the umbilical cord. And you're talking about, you know, this... um, It depends on your level of uh, gag response. (laughs) You put up with a lot of people don't mind blood, a lot of people don't mind fluids, and a lot of people don't mind slime and other things. When birth happens, it can be a very sticky, oozy, bloody affair, right? Um... Why is birth like that? Well, because look what Eve and the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. How's that for a throwback? Because we we have to give women have to give birth in pain because of some evil that happened a long time ago. Everybody knows that. Everybody understands that. So meanwhile, um, he says you want to cut the uh, umbilical cord, and I look at this slimy cord. But it's the cord of life. It's what uh, you know. Those cords when. Uh, when uh, men um, and women now uh, go out, astronauts, when they go out to fix something on the spaceship or to adjust the uh, solar panel or whatever it is, they are attached by a cord to the, um, to the ship, to, the, uh, to the, uh, you know, the orbiting satellite or to the uh, spaceship or the space station. And that cord has oxygen in it. That cord keeps it from drifting and flying right off into space. The slightest motion would take them forever, who knows where. And um, so, uh, you know, so he says, do you want to cut this cord? Same cord, same kind of cord, the cord of life. And But now my son has been born. He is outside of his mother's womb. He's not being fed. He's not getting oxygen. He's not getting food. <clears throat> and uh, fuel and protein and everything else he needs from his mother inside. He is out in the world now, and good luck to him. And he's breathing the air, so I can cut this cord. So this doctor's looking at me, and I'm thinking, cut the cord. Do I want to cut the cord? It wasn't. And the 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 least disturbing thing to me was the surgical part of it, you know, the ooze and the slime and everything else. But the most disturbing thing to me was, do I want to be the one to cut this cord? Do I want to be the one to forever release this child and, and into into the uh, into this this veil of tears? <laughs> and for some people, of course, for most people, this uh, this land of enchantment and excitement. You know, I am. My bottom line is negativity. That's what I was saying before. I am the fly in the ointment here at, uh, at Progressive Radio Network. My bottom line is complaining and negativity, and I am not. And I'm proud of it. I'm tired of people telling me they don't want to hear my complaints. You don't want to hear my complaints, don't listen to me anymore. Right? I am embracing my inner complainer. That's what I'm doing from now on. And uh, 
So this guy's looking at me, and he's this big, kind of waspy, athletic doctor, you know, uh, who my my wife was, uh, my ex-wife was crazy about this guy. So everything she wanted in a man, right? He had lots of money. He, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he was. Well, good looking, but I was good looking too. And he was a doctor, right? And where was I going with my life? And she would have liked to have been with him, I think. But, um, you know, so he's looking at me. He says, you want to cut the cord? And he wasn't deliberately challenging me. He was offering me a gift. That's the way he looked. That is a nice guy, a really nice guy, right? And so I did. Seems to me I sort of had to, right? So I take this, uh, this special surgical scissors and I cut the cord. And it's, an, it's, a, it's something that I will never, ever forget, the sensation of it, the gut feeling, the memory of it, the, the sense memory just rebounds back and forth in my head whenever I do think upon it, you know. And when I talk to my son, uh, as I did the other day, to talk to him about his career, which is going very well, thank you, <laughs> and he's doing quite well in the world, he's married, he's got a career, and my daughter also uh, married with a career. Well, when I talk to them, grown people out in the world experiencing disappointment, pain, excitement, uh, achievement, uh, recognition, um, flexing their own psychic and intellectual and emotional muscle in the world and paying the price for things. <clears throat> I think that I cut that umbilical cord <laughs> and I set him loose. And because mine never did get cut. Mine never did get cut. Um, yeah, I know the original one did, and uh, but it never. My my emotional and psychological uh, umbil umbil umbilical cord never got cut. To this day, uh, if I it's 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 in strands now, right? It's it's still, but it's still attached, and that's too bad for me. That's too bad for me, uh, which is a whole other story. So meanwhile, here it is. I'm 71 years old, and I'm reviewing my life and what's important and what's not important and one of the things and this is a long complicated tale uh, and um, something that will take a lot of consideration and reviewing and speaking to the I Ching and listening to the I Ching and other things that my generation did but one thing is that I'm not so sure I really need to be on the radio anymore and this is what I was starting off thinking about before I came on the air today and something I've been thinking about for a while, and there's many reasons for it. Uh, there are some technical and material and uh, other reasons for it. It's a lot harder for me to, uh, to even get to the radio station than it used to be. It's all harder for me to be in the radio station than it used to be. Um, and um, when I lost the job at Sirius Satellite Radio, because I really don't have the chops, I don't have the voice for it anymore, um, that uh, that changed things for me a lot, too. So what I've got is this show on PRN, and I do get responses. And I want, again, I'll repeat one last time, uh, I need to hear from everybody who is listening to this broadcast or who is going to down or downloads this broadcast. I want to just to have you check in and let me know you're listening, because that will have some effect on whether or not I even stay on the radio anymore. And I'm not running away from the radio. I'm not giving it up. I'm just letting go of it if I do let go of it. And it's something that I'm seriously considering doing. It's been 30, I don't know what, 36, 37 years that I've been on the radio. Um, one of the questions for me is, 
do people really need to hear what I have to say? There's a million radio stations now. When I started out in the radio, there weren't that many radio stations. It was a unique thing. There was no satellite radio. There was no internet radio. There was no alternative radio. There was only whatever was on AM and FM on what's called terrestrial radio, right? There was only terra firma on the radio. And so you could be more unique, and you could uh, predict what was happening, right? You could uh, you can tell who your audience might be, and you could tell what was going to, uh, and, and and you knew you would have a certain huge group of people, in some cases large, even bigger than huge group of people, who would follow you every week. Now you're competing with how many people have podcasts? A lot of times the guests I, invo- I, I invite onto the show have their own radio shows. Every organization has its own radio show. Everybody I know has their own podcast. My brother-in-law has a podcast. Um, he does a wonderful music show on a station up in Maine. I'll have to bring you the call letters for it. A terrific music show every Monday night from 9 to 11. Uh, and a small station up in Maine. And, of course, everybody in the whole world can hear it. And uh, my old station's still on the air, sort of, WBAI, poor old BAI. May it soon rest in peace and be put out of its agony, except I feel bad for my friends who have shows on there and people who do listen to these shows. But um, the place is really... (laughs) It's like a walking... It's like a zombie. It's walking around without a soul, except for a couple of the uh, of the shows, and interestingly enough, by the old-time show, the old-timers, some of the old-time shows. Um, uh, do I need to do this anymore? I'm asking myself. I'm not necessarily asking you. Do I need to do this anymore? Do I need to go through the trouble? And uh, at Sirius Satellite Radio, I was getting paid to do it. Uh, here, uh, this is a volunteer job, and it's a lot of... Uh, um, uh, trouble for me and some expense to come and do this job. Also, it's uh, a very difficult trip, and I'm older now and have various health problems I didn't used to have, blah, 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 blah. But the main question is, is this now still part of my karma, or have I fulfilled that part of it? Is there another way I can express myself? When you go to my website, you'll see all these photos that I take. I love taking pictures now. Take pictures of things all over the city. Check it out when you go to fadafiles.com. All right, I've been uh, told that I've only had two minutes left here. I didn't intend to speak this long, but that is what I'm thinking about. I am 71 as of last Wednesday. I'm reviewing my life. There are things that I need to do or things I'd like to do, and they may not include being on the radio anymore. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. We'll see what happens. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. the fire and the fury 
Keep the devil 